Hey, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin. And I'm Paige. It's the Intermist episode. Folks, it's been a year. This is our one-year anniversary episode. We're very pleased to be coming to you from the depths of Vancouver. We're gonna we're gonna start off here by telling you that this podcast is going on hiatus because our lives are really busy. They've gotten increasingly busy um, since their little lull near the start of this pandemic. And because of that, and because of other logistical stuff, uh, it's just not very tenable for us to continue the podcast at the pace that it's been going at the moment, or even we thought about doing other formats for the moment, and we just decided right now what we need is to kind of slow down the production of the podcast a bit. But we're going to keep it going. Just so everyone appreciates the magnitude of what we've done, we have we have done 40 <laughs> episodes plus three Q&As in the span of a year. We're going to keep recording at our own pace, and once we can string 10 episodes together, we're going to release that as a season. But until then, uh, it might take a month, it might take a few months, it might take longer, who knows? Uh, It all depends on how we feel. Uh, This podcast was started with the explicit assurances to one another that we would only keep going if we felt like we had something constructive to say and would enjoy saying it. So, you know, we, we want to continue it in that fashion uh, and not be that kind of podcast that pumps out uh, a podcast every single week because they're contractually obliged by some company. We're also going to finally finish our feature. Yeah. Yeah, Tevin and Will are directing a feature and it's been sitting in limbo because Directed. of the pandemic. <laughs> Almost two years still, ago. You're still, you're still directing it because you got to edit it. You're going to direct the editor. <laughs> but I don't know if people know this, but um, as someone who lives with one of the people, like, you know, I, I have my name on this podcast, but, you know, at this point, I'm I'm a leech. I do very little to help. <laughs> like, Tevin and Will put the hours in, and every episode takes a lot of hours, especially, you know, the research and the editing. Um, and I'm sure those of you that have gotten your hands dirty in any of these kind of technical realms understand that but just credit where it's due Devin and Will have done an amazing job with the podcast in regards to the time they've put in and I just uh as as someone that lives with one of them I I just wanted to give them the creds they deserve that's very (laughs) kind of you you should keep this in don't be modest keep it in We will, we we have to counterbalance it by sniping at each other. So I just want to say, Paige, you really dropped the ball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> counterbalance how great we are by just attacking Paige. Yeah. That's how it works. That's that's balance, right? I don't know. That's the circle of life, baby. But yeah, we're uh, we we're looking forward to being able to work on just episodes we're stoked about, and we'll have the time to work on, and even being able to do something like record a commentary on a movie that we both feel we have a lot to say about and can say it alongside the movie in real time for our patrons, that kind of thing. It just leaves us a little more space to do that. What we're going to do is change our Patreon to a per-episode basis. And that gives us the ability to, for example, if we really run out of money, we can just put out 10 episodes in an hour and bilk everyone out. It's a great scam. Um, well, and, and just so people know, if people aren't a Patreon member yet, right now our Patreon's set up so that uh, folks that choose to pay monthly, uh, which is great when we had the model of 
coming out with an episode every week, but now with this new schedule that we're thinking of working with, we just don't think it would be fair to charge people monthly. So we're thinking we're going to go with if folks choose to, they can, you know, throw a uh, throw a little money for every episode that comes out. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and we'll, and you know, as we do episodes, we're we're still going to keep to our promise to do some bonus content, but that'll happen when it happens, and no sooner or later than when it happens, because that's that's the existential reality of what happening as a word means. <laughs> should we move on to questions, or should we do Snyder Cut? Let's let's do Snyder Cut last, because that's what the kids want. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll put I'll ask the questions. What are your thoughts on the Wonkar Wai restoration? Oh, no. Oof. I really wish the person who answered this wasn't, like, anonymous, because I would I would politely, I would say, please rescind your question, but I guess we can't. Why is this such a, why is this, yeah, why is this such a contentious issue? You guys don't like it. There, done. Hands washed clean. Because it's, it's so more complicated, complicated than that. <laughs> it's complicated. So, so I've, I've achieved some degree of note. I'm kind of a big deal for my comparison video. No. <laughs> no, um, me and Will have been a little vocal on Twitter about our uh, mixed feelings on these the new World of Wonkar Y box set that was released by the Criterion Collection. And yeah, no, I, th- I think what's interesting to me about the Wonkar Y restorations is how many different threads of the kind of issues around revisionism they tie together. We've done a fair amount of episodes about restoration and re- revisionism and if, if anyone wants to hear our wider philosophical beliefs about those, I refer you to those. But as far as the Wonka Y set goes, I, I think there's a lot of competing kind of rights here. One is the right of the artist, and anyone else actually, I think for that matter, to retroactively, you know, tinker with their work. I think that's fine. Uh, that's resulted in plenty of good things. Um, Healthy even. But I, I think my, my, my issues with it have remained the same this whole time, which is gosh, I wish they had included versions that were designed to represent the, I I would call, historically relevant versions of the films. Um, The movie I care most about is Chunking Express because it's my most favoritist. And (laughs) in that case, you know, like we can litigate the, the merits of the various changes, right? You know, do the are the new credits better or worse they're worse but okay um was reinstating the fei wong cover of dreams uh from the hong kong release uh a g- good decision or not i'm less sure about that i think there's merits to putting it in as so it artistically was, so that that did exist in one version of the film already the dreams being earlier yeah it yeah. did but then oh, i didn't know that it was included in an early version of the film screened in Hong Kong in some capacity in what capacity I am unsure but it was later taken out and replaced with kind of a soundscape uh, in the mm. much more widely seen international version either way to me the, the the shame is in that right now if you want to see the version of the film that vast vast majority of audiences worldwide saw in <gasps> oh, the credits are horrible in motion they are really bad motion. Oh, the little slide-in effect is horrible. Sorry, I'm watching your yeah, comparison it's video. It's very like talk. Adobe Premiere uh, After Effects preset looking. Yeah. It's the same basic reason I don't like the Star Wars Special Editions. is because it's an attempt to supplant the original and to make the original yeah. unavailable, which I think is a bad thing. I, I really care about art preservation, and so does Will. Um, and 
I think it's a bad thing when, uh, even for personal artistic whims, the uh, original version of a work, I guess not the original, I should say the most historically relevant version of a work, is made unavailable. I think that's a shame, and I don't quite buy the whole, oh, you can pirate the old version. I mean, if you have to resort to pirating, I don't know. Uh, Obviously, it's easier to pirate stuff now than it used to be, um, but like... The idea of like, oh, there's still prints. Collectors have prints, like has been used to justify like major excesses of uh, anti-preservationist stuff for decades. And people also, I think, don't recognize how much work it often takes to preserve those piratable versions. Mm -hmm. Not to mention those versions that you can pirate for obvious reasons, like they're older scans. Right, the illegal part. Um, they're <laughs> older scans, though, right? Like, so they just don't look as good as they could, right? It would be great to have them fully restored to, so that they 100% look the way they did upon yeah. their release. I think it's maybe just something related to film in general being quite a new medium and it being a, like, especially now in the digital era of filmmaking, it being, there is not that tangible element of um, archiving. I wonder if it's just, Filmmakers maybe just aren't thinking about their work in that way. Film, The film community broadly is not thinking about archiving in that way. You know, in the same way the art, visual art community might be. The film community is very good at appreciating a new restoration of a film. They're not great at appreciating what went into getting it. Like everyone loves the color in the red shoes. People do not know how long we had to go with basically the assumed position of the future being well we'll never get to see how Mm -hmm. it looks with like properly aligned three strip technicolor what do you think of the color restoration or the color changes to the new release of chunking express just because you have this comparison that you've done devin i'm it's interesting because the the purpose of the comparison was for me mostly about the editorial changes um, and the soundscape changes. The color was just a byproduct of that. Like I have mixed feelings. There's two things. One, there's the color data being pulled from the negative. It's way better in the new release. Just oodles better. It, it was done on a modern 4K scanner as opposed to the old... I don't know exactly what scanner they used in the old one. Um but it was an old scan without the greatest color or dynamic range retention. There is a mm-hmm. ton of digital noise in that scan, and there is a ton of clipping in the highlights. The new scan is just way better, for example, skin tone fidelity, way better highlight retention, way better shadows. Um, it has been DNR, digitally noise reduced, but even then, the grain is probably <laughs> more representative of what of what the negative looks like than the old release, which has, again, a lot of scanner noise and digital sharpening applied probably at the transfer stage. I would say the new release has far better technical aspects in that way. Um, The next question is, is the color aesthetically better? And the third question would be, is which one represents the way the film looked in you know, 1994 in cinemas. And I would say probably neither uh, of these represent how the film ever looked in cinemas. I don't know if it's somewhere in between or off in a third direction, but who knows? Um, I have not seen a 35 of the film. So it's really tough to say, right? I mean, I would say that in terms of the blue tint of the old version, I would maybe hazard a guess to say that's more accurate, but it's really tough to say. Um, As far as which I aesthetically prefer, 
uh, that's really tied up in my own history with the film, right? Because to me, Chunking Express will always kind of in my mind probably look like that 2008 Blu-ray with the the steely blue tint, right? Does that mean I prefer that? I don't know yet. Yeah, well, things can change over time, right? Like, I mean, there's been movies where uh, my preference when I ran up to a new restoration of the film that changed some part of the aesthetic in a major way. My preference immediately ran back to what I knew well. And then over time, when you when you give it a chance and you think it through, sometimes it does, like, you conclude the new one's better. I think it's... I think sometimes people overestimate how stuck they are with what they already know is what they'll always prefer. Unless it's those title cards. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm partly saying this to acknowledge that part of Wong Kar Wai's attempt with his revisions, which I don't even like calling these restorations. I, I, they're revisions because they're not restoring They're the new films. versions, yeah. Yeah, part of the objective per Wong's own statement is to see the films in a new way, to move forward, et cetera, and not be trapped in the past. And I just want to be clear that I personally don't feel I'm the sort of person who like can't appreciate like a new spin on something. I recently saw the 1977 Italian uh, recut of Godzilla and it's incredible. <laughs> like I love it. I would never want the original Godzilla to be suppressed because of it. There's fan cuts that I keep around specifically for that reason. I'm probably never going to watch a version of Blade Runner again, unless it's for like academic purposes. That's not the final cut because I think the final cut is clearly the best one, even though it has color and CGI that would have never existed in 1982. Sound revisions too. Yeah. Sound, yeah, there's tons of revisions, but I think they're all for the better. But yet I would still have a problem with it if they hadn't have included the historically relevant versions, which they so did. awesome that there's so many cuts of that movie in print that it's just it's yeah, just so it's great. Amazing. I, or I have to also ha- hand it to like Terrence Malick, right? Because, you know, the New World and Tree of Life mm-hmm. both have multiple cuts out there. The New World Blu-ray has one of the cuts is a better scan than the other two, but all three have been re- have been restored and given probably the best reasonable effort to be representative that they could. They're all available. Well, and this is the thing is it's it's entirely possible to, especially for a director like Wong, you have to imagine. I mean, obviously, there one of the big things here is that there are financial considerations when you release multiple versions of a movie, right? Mm-hmm. So it might suddenly become less desirable for Criterion to put out a big Wong Kar Wai box set if they have to like double the number of discs or mm-hmm. have the amount of bit rate they're giving to each film. And suddenly it might not be either as good looking of a set or it might not be so financially inviting a prospect to release. So I understand that. I think regardless, there is a responsibility towards preservation of the original versions that had a major impact. I mean, I've um, I've seen a few film historians now talk about how in like 50 years or whatever, it will be difficult for someone to accurately figure out how people, what people were responding to when each of these films originally came out. And this isn't new to Wong, right? He did this with Ashes of Time and you still can't find the original version of Ashes of Time. You can only find like a really, really bad old, old transfer of the original cut of Ashes of Time. Per the argument that it's okay to revise old work and per the argument that um, no one has more of a right to do that than the primary author, if you want to say it, of that work. I understand that viewpoint. I think everyone, though, including that author, has a responsibility to history. 
and to the history of that work. I, I think like collectively we have a responsibility to the culture that like we enjoy and that nourishes us. And the fact that you created that original work gives you, I think certainly, I mean, without going into like the idea of copyright and stuff like that, but it, 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 it gives you more uh, rights and more leeway in terms as being the primary author, but it does not mean that you don't still have a historical responsibility. The film, to some extent, passes out of your hands and into the hands of history. And it's part of your job when you have the opportunity to make sure it stays there. There's been a little bit of writing about the cinematographer that worked with him on a lot of different films like Chunky Express and Fallen, yeah. Yeah, and Fallen Angels, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love, like Christopher Doyle and Wong Kar Wai because they did so much collaboration together. And it's just quite a well-known partnership. I just wondered like what you guys thought from what I heard Christopher Nolan had like Doyle. Oh, no, Nolan. <laughs> no, Christopher Doyle, sorry. <laughs> you know, he'd give a little bit of like feedback on the restoration. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder like with the color again, sorry, I keep coming back to that, but like, um, you know, Wong Kar Wai is the director. How do you feel about the impacts of that kind of restoration work when films aren't just made by one person? There's all these other collaborators that have like such a huge impact on the the whole film, like a cinematographer would. I have a lot of responses to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> one is a general thing, right? And I think, yeah, what you're getting at, you're getting at something about the collaborative nature of large-scale popular cinema, which Wong Kar Wai movies are in that way. They're not Don Hertzfeld movies. You know, the idea that, oh, the director has the final say on all this and that uh, they have absolute the absolute right to reauthor their films. I don't quite feel that way as a cinematographer. Like, like I'll be honest, there have been films that I just throw up my hands at and then I just... You know, it's a bad experience. I, you know, I have no part in the post, right? But that's very rare. Usually, I care about where a film goes. And if, for example, in ten years, uh, a director I worked with were to, without consulting me, you know, completely recolor grade a film and release it as a totally different thing, I would probably feel kind of not okay with that, right? Uh, I would like to at least be consulted and have a proper falling out about it. Yeah, and this (laughs) is, just to clarify, like you as a cinematographer collaborator. Exactly, me as a cinematographer, which, you know, I do sometimes. But another element to it is that the case of the Wong Kar Wai, Christopher Doyle working relationship is a very specific one. Um, They have, to this date, had more falling outs than I could imagine two people having who would still work together for some reason. Really? Um, oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, they had a falling out <laughs> yeah. over Ashes of Time. They had falling out during the making of, of In the Mood for Love in 2046. I mean, the two of, I mean, you should read Chris Doyle's production diary made during <laughs> Happy Together. The, 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 I'm amazed they made as many films together as they did. Yeah. And did they still work together? No. No, they, no, they, they don't. don't. They haven't worked together since 2046. And even that was a wow. partial completion. So you have that extenuating circumstance there, but you also have the fact that a lot of the stuff that's baked into the look of these films at the time, especially something happy, something like Happy Together, was the result of physical damage done to, you know, interpositives and stuff like 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 um, stuff that doesn't reflect the negative. So what's ha- ended up ha- happening with Happy Together is that later versions of that film on Blu-ray have not really reflected what a release print would have looked like because the release prints had physical, literal damage done to them in between this negative stage and the release print stage that you can't really recreate digitally, so they can't help but look different. So you have mm-hmm. the digital version of the film and the celluloid version of that film 
so the, at that point, I have to throw up my hands and go, okay, things are going to look different. Right? Point being, I think it's a really complex issue that is both, you can both draw generalities from, but also I think there's a whole ton of the specific situation of Wong Kar Wai and Chris Doyle that right. uh, can't really be generalized to. What, yeah. what do you, do you have any feelings? Well, as like a, someone that has collaborated, I guess like with a notoriously specifics- um, prickly, prickly cinematographer. Well, I, can't, I, can't, I I mean more like, Will, like when you've sound designed films that aren't yours or when you've yeah. edited films that aren't yours, like I wonder like if like Sophie or someone you've collaborated was like, oh yeah, I'm totally re- like revising the sound design. Well, for what it's worth, this is a good question. Sophie, a few weeks ago, Sophie Rambari, um, who has Former been on guest. the podcast and uh, directed a film that Devin and, and I worked on called Still Processing. Sophie came to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, this there's a little bit of archive footage in this film. I'm thinking about like changing the aspect ratio of it. Of a fairly minor change, not not totally insignificant, but a minor change. Um, and she said, I wanted to run it by you and see what you think um, before I pulled the trigger on that. But she she ran it by me and I th- I thought that was great. If someone made a minor change, like someone like five years, 10 years, whatever, like made a minor change like that and didn't consult me, I wouldn't be insulted. I would. It would be nice to be consulted, but I get that. Like you know, time mm-hmm. time marches on, and we have different takes. But yeah, if someone completely altered a film without letting me know that they were doing that, I would and letting me weigh in what I think about them doing that, I would be pretty unhappy. We've talked. Chunking Express got through rather unscathed, all things considered. Not Fallen Angels and In the Mood for Love, and I want to especially talk about Fallen Angels. Um, we can dovetail into the Snyder Cut talk eventually from this, but um, <laughs> I, I have now seen more or less both versions of Fallen Angels. What Juan White did was he <laughs> cropped the film to CinemaScope in 235 to 1 and also distorted it. It is distorted in such a way as to emulate what it would look like projected through an anamorphic lens. And I think the results are very disastrous. <laughs> Although he's heavily cropped it as well. Yes, it's a combination of cropping and distortion. I appreciate the effort, and I guess it's fun to have an alternate version of the film, but I have, again, two issues. One, original version, more than ever, that should be available. Um, Two, I find a lot of the discourse about it online very frustrating, because the question of do the new compositions work seems to rarely enter into it beyond you look good to me. I specifically compared a lot of the compositions one to the other, and I could not find a single composition, and I tried, where I preferred the CinemaScope version. I genuinely could not. There are principles to composition that are clearly being followed. Things like border merges being avoided in certain areas. Things like geometry. Things like use of depth and counterpoint that are completely lost in the new version. And I, I sometimes I feel like I'm pulling my hair out because the conversation about these this aspect ratio change becomes this abstract thing about Wong Kar Wai's right to make the changes when the question of actually <laughs> analyzing these frames doesn't seem to enter into it and it bugs yeah, me. Yeah, and this is probably the most heated I've ever gotten on the podcast, but darn it. <laughs> and it and if you're going to own strictly if you're going to avoid the question of um whether the original should be kept or not, then like if if your whole thing is like well let's just move on let's let's look to the future then shouldn't you be more willing to actually analyze what you've got in front of you in that case and what you're going into the future with and make 
detailed judgments of it, especially comparative ones. I mean, he he cut vital information. It's not even um, um, the fine details of composition either. Like he cut major details out by cropping. In my brain, I am starting to understand how this connects to the Snyder Cut. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I just want to say, wi- without going into every single film's differences, and I have not done a full dive into Days of Being Wild, but of the other things, Chunking Express's new 5.1 mix has a number of revisions. I haven't done too deep a dive on it, but they're worrying from what I've heard. Yeah, um, well, there's one, the, um, the, the voiceover has all been very compressed. It sounds, yep. to my ears, over-processed, but again, I'm used to the old version, but... It, it sounds solidly worse to me. Happy Together um, has been uh, partially recut because part of the negative was damaged. And instead of using other existing print materials, which are very good and close to negative quality, uh, they simply cut those parts out and recut the film. In the Mood for Love, um, while it is possible that the film, as was originally released theatrically, was not as neutral as the original Criterion Blu-ray disc, uh, it seems to me very implausible that it was as green and yellow as the new disc is, especially given that the restoration outfit that worked on that film has a bit of a history of over-tinting films in a similar manner as you see in, in The Mood for Love. There are yellow title cards that open the film that in other releases have always been white. I want to make it clear, though, that this has clearly been pushed way more green than Retrovada generally pushes things. Like, Yes. Um, this is way more, like, clearly there was a direction here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, oh, there, it's definitely a big push, but the, the yellowish title cards are classic Retrovada. Yes. Not cla- not every film they work on has the problem, but it, it is recurrent. Most do. <laughs> Many do. Yeah. Um, so In the Mood for Love also has a new 5.1 mix, and the I looked into it a bit deeper, though not throughout the entire film, and the changes are substantial. Uh, one of the earliest scenes in the film, um, you can hear people through the walls of the apartment, and that... Uh, sound has been removed and replaced entirely with background music in the surround channels. So there's lots of significant changes in In the Mood for Love's soundtrack as well, uh, pending further look. 2046, so far, I haven't found any major significant changes other than title cards that have been redone and replaced with somewhat different, I think, slightly inferior fonts. And weirdly enough, some of the opening title cards are out of order from the version I'm used to seeing. Like just major casts have been swapped around a little bit. Doesn't change the timing or anything. Just weird. So that's that's kind of like the broad stuff that I know of that I have opinions on with the Wong Kar Wai <laughs> restoration. So. Can I totally contradict myself for a second? One argument put forward by Ant Standard Speeds on Twitter Um, I think it's interesting um, to paraphrase what they said. um, The best version of a film is the version you have available to you. And I think that I both vehemently disagree with that and also actually agree with it depending on the audience I'm talking to there. For example, if I'm talking to people at like the Blu-ray.com forums, hello, um, and they're like, I think there's like this quest for a lot of people to like scientifically match some platonic ideal of a film's color palette to like some memory or some release print from the date cinematographers generally shoot films and i've included myself in that with the knowledge that their film will not always be screened in ideal conditions and even ideal conditions can vary people's experiences of your film will vary it's an art not a science actually (laughs) in terms of restoring a film to the way it was quote-unquote originally seen because the way it was quote-unquote originally seen is often wildly variable so i actually think that there is this overly tunnel vision quest for that sometimes but i 
also think that there is merit to wanting to push for better, more rigorous technical consideration when it comes to those things and the availability of versions that are historically relevant. So the good, the bad and the ugly is a great example of something where if we accepted widely and uh, and flatly the premise that the best version of the film is the one that you have, we would not have what we have now, which is a version that accurately matches Sergio Leone's director's cut or one of his two director's cut of the film and none of his personal cuts of the film, which were the two that were originally widely released, have ever been on home video. We've said this till we're blue in the face, but it's still true. And it took a lot of people complaining very loudly, working very hard behind the scenes who were not involved in an official capacity for years um, before a release like that could happen, that had an accurate cut, that had more accurate colors, that had better sound. It just took so much. Absolutely, I think uh, at standard speeds is right. And uh, and there is smart smart person and uh, you should follow them. I think that that notion is good in as much as it doesn't keep you from seeking out works of cinema that can be great and essential, regardless of whether they happen to be the absolute best version. Um, but I think it takes a lot of people carrying a whole lot for this stuff to get released in its best shape. And its best shape can be a whole lot better than you might think it is relative to the other versions. The, the next question just is handheld or tripod? No more details were given. Go. The answer is it depends on the film and the context and the shot, obviously. Yeah. Answer done. Moving on. Yeah, <laughs> I find it interesting because um, generally I find like people who are familiar with my cinematography work, the general consensus seems to be that I as a cinematographer tend to prefer tripods to everything else. People seem surprised when I say, no, my favorite way of moving a camera is handheld. <laughs> if I had to like <laughs> take, if I had a gun to my head, I would choose handheld over tripod. People wouldn't be surprised if they knew you in film school. I'll tell you that much. No. Yeah, Devin was like apparent, like I wasn't really in <laughs> Devin's like time, but there was constantly jokes being made that Devin was like a mad Those man. stuck around? Well, I, I know not. For a few years after your time. Yeah, I know, I know for a fact they were. It was like a joke amongst Devin's peers that like Devin was a wild man and would just basically like flail around with the handheld camera because like he would get good shots, but he would look. It was true. Yeah, he would. He would look ridiculous while doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like if you don't look ridiculous while making a movie, what's the point of making the movie? Okay, but finish your story. I find my answer genuinely just depends on what we arrive at, me and the director or me and myself for what the project needs, right? Um, I tend to yeah. be anti-trend in the sense that right now the trend is everyone wants to use gimbals. Uh, so I tend to be a bit skeptical of that because I know that people are might say what's trendy before what they say what's right. Um, so I tend <laughs> to push back against trends, but at the same time, right? Like I, some of the movements I'm proudest of are like, like the gimbal movements in academia, right? I think those work great. Mm. For me, it's whatever works, whatever the language of the film needs. But I also have to be true to kind of, especially when I'm directing with you, Will, like I have to be true to how I see the world, which is, I think, leans handheld because yeah. I find, I don't know, there's something about the energy of it and the um, improvisational possibilities of it that really speak to me in a way that nothing else does. So uh, whenever someone kind of, pushes this as the like oh what's the right thing to use here is it handheld or tripod i think that's the wrong framing it's not about what the right way to do it is both handheld and tripod fit within a million different 
like grammatical approaches to cinema so that even if you're the scene that you're going for even if you want a particular effect of like oh i want to have like lots of kinetic energy and chaotic um um and, and you can scary, get that with tripods or yeah you can get that with mm. very much so with tripods right like um like watch i i mean the obvious one is the shower scene in psycho but like you have to get really granular before you can go like oh for this very particular version of the thing you want this might be better just to look back at like the climax, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that's nothing but static tripod shots. And look at the energy of that scene. It's similar to the thing where someone will say like, what's the right aspect ratio for this scene? This is a, a popular like listicle or whatever that you see popping up among like <laughs> uh, filmmaker help websites. And I, I truly dislike almost every single one of those I've seen because it inevitably goes like, well, the wider one is for cinematic stuff, you know, and like uh, a big action movie with spectacle or lots of stunts will benefit from that. But like a, a romantic movie might not. And it's like, no, that's wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> like it's it's um, any given aspect ratio is like at least out of like the most common ones, like 2.39 to 1, 1.85 to 1, uh, 1.33 to 1. Um I, given that there are like different uh, situations of setting and such that might make it more immediately conducive to shoot with one or over the other. But even then, like you can shoot for almost any given tone or effect that you want with one particular aspect ratio or another. They're, they're all just so flexible. Like mm -hmm. you have to be you have to recognize the flexibility in your tools a bit better than just being overwhelmed by the amount of choices and and simplifying them going okay well that's that that one's cinematic that one is old-timey that one you know it's i think it also is like just in general it, it comes down to the details you know like the aspect ratio could be very much are we filming you know in a field or are we filming in the city and like very like and even that's quite broad like you know does this scene call for handheld or static well you know how tall is the actor? You know what I mean? Like these things like this, these really small details can end up being the, that all add up to make a, a frame. So one of our patrons and former guest Bram asked us if we could elaborate on what makes a good soundtrack specifically, if Will could go into that, what makes a good soundtrack, Will? By soundtrack, I assume the question means original scores because soundtrack is a broader thing. Like you could say soundtrack is literally all the sound for the entire film, or you can say that the soundtrack is just all the musical pieces used in the film, whether they're original or not. Uh, the question of like whether a piece of music is appropriate to a piece of film uh, is, is something that's like a little too broad, I think to meaningfully discuss in the short space we have here. So I'll stick with the idea of what makes an original score work for a film. Within the film score enthusiast community, um, I think often people get on uh, pretty frustrating polarities. There are people who are very old school who say it, that it needs to have themes and those themes need to develop along the course of it. And it should have like big lush orchestration and it should be very tonal and melodic. Um, and if it's part of a broader franchise or genre or style, then it should have stuff that directly matches that style while still throwing in some things of its own. I think that's far too narrow and that um, that provides too little room for experimentation. Um, there's people on the other side who are just like, hey, if it just immediately satisfies me in the moment that I listen to it, it's good. Then it's a good score. I think that's very unsatisfying because it, it does not 
it does not acknowledge the depth that a score affects a film, like the depth that it brings to it, um, the extent to which it affects a given scene. So what makes a good soundtrack is, or what makes a good original score is someone has very carefully thought about what is the musical signature based on the tools I have available, musical tools of me, the composer, or of my composer, how does how do those tools how can we use those tools to build the signature right whether it's the particular parts of the orchestra that are emphasized whether it's non-orchestral right or whether it's a single instrument or whether it's a rock band um that's part of it then part of it is how do all the little fine tuning of the signature contribute to the specifics of the film right whether it's like a particular character they might have a theme they might just uh, have a particular approach you know they might not have a particular motif of instrument or melody attached to them at all there's just an approach you use for them or uh, an, a theme of the story right it gets a specific approach um, how does the score develop across the length of the film um, like how does it tie into its own whole and how does it tie into the whole of the film and not just in a way where it matches what the film is doing, but it contributes to it. It actually deepens it. Um, and that, that is very difficult to do to actually actively deepen the meaning of the film with music. And it's fairly rare, but it does happen. And I think the best scores do that. Um, and finally, I think this is arguably the most widely underrated part of this is that what makes a good original score is just that it's good music. You know, you can, and it, there's different presentations, like listening to a score on an album is different than listening to it in film. I acknowledge that, but it should hang together as music that provides interesting ideas that doesn't just do the same thing over and over with barely any iteration or variation. Uh, it should be interesting music that is providing interesting ideas on a consistent basis that is satisfying and meaningful and, uh, you know, cohesive. But then sometimes uh, something that is just tonal and might not be actually that satisfying musically on its own, but works great with the film, sometimes that does work great. I don't think Blade Runner, honestly, like if you sit down and listen to Blade Runner actively as a score, I don't think it's that interesting, but it contributes so much to the film, um, partly because there's literally sound design elements baked into the score of Blade Runner. It's very, it's very dependent. Do you want to add anything, Devin? Um, no. I guess the to follow up with that one episode that you guys considered uh, making was what was the best soundtracks slash scores of 2020? Quickly, what's your top one, Will? Who should have been nominated? Who should have won? None of the nominees this year were even in my top 10. And I think there's only two of them that I would say are like really worth like kind of like seeking out and enjoying. Um, as scores my favorite score of the year it, I got I, I was in a tough place so I'm kind of relieved in a way we're not doing the episode I think because it was a really tight three-way race between uh, The Call of the Wild by John Powell who's just been on an incredible hot streak for the last five years or so WW84 the new Wonder Woman score by Hans Zimmer who which it's his best score incredible turnaround from the many many middling at absolute best abysmal at worst uh, blockbuster scores he's been doing for the last uh, decade or two um, and uh, then the personal hot history of David Copperfield by Christopher Willis astonishingly good synthesis of different uh, turn-of-the-century European influences 
Um, usually when a score is full of like one minute or shorter cues, uh, then I get frustrated because it doesn't develop its ideas meaningfully. Personal history of David Copperfield does not do that. So those those are kind of my top three-ish, and I'm not going to commit to a single one. For me, if if you're if you're asking me like right now, like what was the best score I heard in 2020 that was made available in 2020? Wild Evergarden, the movie, hands down. Evan Call's like probably, in my opinion, the best new film composer in the world. And his three Violet Evergarden scores, the for the Netflix series, for the um, OVA that he did, he did a few new uh, cues for that. And now the movie like are just a straight up masterpiece. Incredible work. None of them were nominated. None of my nominee, none of the actual nominees are even close to being in my like top <laughs> selection. And it's really, really frustrating to me. We're recording this before the Oscar ceremony happens. It's really frustrating to me that Soul is probably going to win when, while I like the jazz elements of that, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's segments, I think, actively detract from the film. And they showed far more growth in Mank as composers. Oh, boy, we're going to have to talk about Snyder Cut, aren't we? So our promise that Devin and Will have made I don't know where you made it. Someone's going to hold you accountable, though, if we don't yeah, mention this, we have is promised. to talk about the Snyder Cut. So I don't know what you guys want to say with it. Um, go. Long-time listeners of the podcast, but remember we did an episode talking about crazy Justice League stuff. So Snyder Cut of Justice League, which is Zack Snyder was fired off of Justice League, the big blockbuster whatever in 2017. Yeah, what new information has come to light since our last episode? Uh, well, uh, lots of bits and pieces of new information. I mean, we learned little details about how Joss Whedon took over directing the film. I mean, you also did a log of every shot in each movie that you can try to figure out which shot was from which version. What did you come up with? What were your findings? I am not completely done. I'm about 95% done, but it is about 50-50. It's roughly 50-50 between Snyder footage and Whedon footage, which I, I mean, I thought it was more Snyder footage. So I think it's more than people who thought like, oh, Snyder shot more of the 2017 version than people think, uh, than they expected. And I think it's, um, more, uh, Snyder footage than people who thought like, oh, Whedon just completely took this over and the vast majority of the movie is his. Mm. I think it's more Snyder footage than those people expected. The 2017 cut then, half and half, the two directors most implicated in this film. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the, the only two directors to our knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Um, the 2021 version comes out. It's in four by three uh, Academy ratio ish. It's almost four hours long. <laughs> and it gets. Mixed reviews from film critics um, in our own anecdotal circles on film Twitter, largely very positive reactions, I would say. A little mixed, but... At first, uh, the, the the day one, day two reactions, very positive. I'll yeah, say. and I think I have such mixed feelings about all this. Overall, I, I'll say this. Massive improvement over the 2017 Justice League. More than I expected. Absolutely. Yeah, it was better than I expected. Good movie, in my opinion not close um, and it is weird to me to see people go hey the film was the film was great until the uh, half hour epilogue <laughs> five stars <laughs> you know and, and, and just I mean even, even just the very fact that epilogue is, is such a disastrous closure to the film that I oh it's yeah it's disqualifying from masterpiece status on its own 
Yeah, no, it's it's uh, the film is no longer like a dumpster fire. Um, and I don't mean that as damning with faint praise. Like, like there's genuinely good stretches of action, for example. There's like five minute stretches where I'm like, no big problems with this. This is fun. Like there's a little stretch where Batman's driving his car in the climax and it's goofy. But there's so much bad. Well, there's so much bad action sequences. Bad. There's lots of bad too. I'm not saying I'm not saying this is a good movie. I'm saying that like legitimately there is good stuff in this movie. There are good ideas in this movie. It's not like Snyder has no talent, has no like like you know, he has good ideas, they come out. He has ideas where you see where he's coming from, they come out and they don't work. And but it's a heck of a lot better than the completely self-confused mess that came out in 2017. That's that's all I'm saying. Um, Paige, um, though, I, I want to hear your unadulterated opinions at length. Go. Yeah. So I think my perspective is kind of like different than maybe your guys's because I'm not comparing it to anything. But I really didn't like it. I me and Will watched it at home and we had to watch it in two different nights because I couldn't. I mean, it's really long, but we watch <laughs> long movies. I, I just couldn't get through it. And. You know, there's stuff in there I really... Will kept trying to, like... You know, I was, like, going into it thinking, you know, it was, like, the room and we were going to be cracking jokes at it all night. But Will was really trying to give it a fair shot, so I had to I shut up halfway through. I warned you that I, I wanted to give it a fair shot. <laughs> I know, but That's I great. was, like... I like, literally, Will was like, Paige, you got to stop. I'm trying to See, actually this. is the problem this. with the pandemic. If we could have all been in the same room watching it, Paige, I know you and I would have teamed up to ensure that it became a risk screening. <laughs> so, um, I, 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 mean, I, I would have definitely been outvoted. I feel very bad about missing out on that. But, you know. <laughs> but yeah, genuinely, I just, um, I mean, I'm not a really big superhero uh, movie person either. Uh, but, you know, there's superhero movies I like. And... This was just a hot mess. I feel like the biggest <laughs> problem was that it was just had way, it was trying to tell way too many stories. So it yeah. didn't tell any story. Yeah. And the superheroes constantly have like powers that aren't limited or have no definable <laughs> range. So I kept yeah. being like saying to Will, like, am I missing something? Do I not understand the context? Do I need to have read the comics? Do I need to have like seen a previous movie to understand like what this superhero's power is like? limiting are and will's just like no it's just never stated no and he just controls all nukes now <laughs> yeah. yeah like it's just it's just and so it feels like there's no stakes like it's constantly like the sequ like me and will were saying when we watched it like the best sequences are like the action sequences are like that one will was referring to of batman in the climax there's a short part away from all the other superheroes and batman's part is the best because he's just a human and he has discernible limits to his abilities and all yeah. the other ones are just gods and it's just boring to me like oh it was just so bad oh and the, i mean the aspect ratio was fucking hilarious like it was just so clear so many times you're just like what what where yeah the bank heist at the start which i don't understand why people love it so much i see there's some neat moments in it but it's again oh, it's yeah, effectively like just an unmitigated god um <laughs> who kills someone for no reason at the end but uh the bank heist sequence has no business being in that movie. There is nothing important about the bank heist. You can cut the bank heist. It is not important to her character. It's not important to the structure of the film. And in fact, is a significant drag on the film. It's in both versions. Yeah. And when I'm trying to, when, when I'm, when I was saying like, oh, I, you know, there's some good ideas going on and stuff. That's me winding up to say that fundamentally the movie has so many things like scenes that have no business being there or that don't work. Or stuff that just flat out does not make sense, <laughs> you know. There's, there's just a lot of problems. Uh, Can we talk about the movie. aspect ratio? I mean, I'm actually a bit more ambivalent. I'm, I'm less sure of myself in the aesthetic department than I, 
thought I'd be, and it's a broken clock principle, I think, in a certain degree, where there are, I think, frames in this movie that generally work better in 4x3, but in the vast majority don't. The vast majority worked better in 185. So, but I think it's a complex issue, and we should pull apart a couple of things. First is intent. We can pour over the fucking behind-the-scenes photos like there's the Zapruder film to the cows come home. Um, yeah, and I have. And you have. And I think the conclusion we both come to is that for some portion, possibly all of the principal photography, they were framing for 185. Maybe they switched to 4x3 at some point, but the vast majority of behind-the-scenes photos show 185 frame lines, the very least. Yeah. So perhaps they were protecting for 185 and then were like secretly composing more for 4x3. But I don't really buy that because of the other part, which is that I feel like you could just lift my thoughts on Fallen Angels <laughs> to this yeah. and say that <laughs> because the frames for which we have the 185 and the 4x3 versions generally feel so much more geometrically coherent in 185. Yeah. They have much less compositional dead space. They have way better balance. If you look at virtually any wide shot <laughs> in the Snyder Cut, um, that you can pretty much see this thin compositional strip along the middle of the screen, and yeah. then a bunch of dead space, negative space, the, the top and bottom. It's almost never not kind of awkward, um, that's what I was trying to get across. That That's the feeling I got as well. Yeah, and yeah. it kind of bums me out a little seeing people talk in these big, vague generalities about, oh, the verticality of superheroes or whatever. And when I don't really care about it. Like, I think people have this idea of aspect ratios in and formal tools like this as some sort of like constantly symbolic thing, right? Oh, this aspect ratio is for the verticality, but composition is a thing people <laughs> you know the, you can you can shape the box that you're working within endlessly aspect ratio decisions are made for a wide variety of reasons but i frankly care less about which aspect ratio you choose than that you're composing for it and yeah. the snyder cut of the justice league is not that well composed for four by three and during the 2020 whatever pickups that snyder directed late in the film suddenly the entire compositional philosophy changes and yep. it looks distinctly composed for four by three i don't think it's particularly well composed for four by three yet again but the compositional focus drastically changes suddenly when you get into the, the joker epilogue and the final affleck scene because they're clearly no longer framing for it they're clearly no longer <laughs> protecting from 185 and suddenly yeah. you have close-ups <laughs> and so I don't know the argument to me that it was all knowingly composed for 4x3 the whole way through and that's that's hogwash but the argument that they were protecting one or the other waiting for one or the other uh, there's a wide spectrum of possibilities there yeah but for me what really matters is are the compositions any good and generally they're not they just aren't in fact maybe his weakest compositions whether you're viewing them in 185 or 4x3 maybe his weakest compositions certainly of the dc movies he's directed and you know if someone wants to pay me to make a video essay where i lovingly draw little shapes on the screen to explain this go ahead but um <laughs> send me the money <laughs> i don't know I, I i find myself we were gonna actually do an episode where we talk about both the fallen angel and justice league asterisk ratio revisionism thing where it seems everyone's running away from 16 by 9 for whatever reason <laughs> you know in, in both directions and i just find it to me the commonality between these is that 
when you compose for something, you're not just like taking a arbitrarily placed photograph of the world and then drawing lines on it and that's your aspect ratio. You're arranging the things in the frame using focal lengths, camera height, depth of field, depth within the framing, lighting, with a certain aspect ratio in mind. So the idea mm. that later down the pipeline you just change that and, and, and your compositions will hold up almost never applies. I just find th there's a there's a compositional illiteracy that I see in a lot of the writing about these movies. All these things are so intertwined. So it's really like if you change one of them, it really throws the rest of them off a lot of the time. Yeah, I will say that this film has been a good kind of lesson in intellectual humility in a lot of ways where I was wrong about certain things about the film. Like, truthfully, it was better than I expected. Like, I wouldn't call it an absolute disaster. I don't think it's good. But um, but what I think it is, is like a damn sight better than what I expected. The whole thing with Justice League is that there was so much narrative built up around this movie. So much myth-making um, about how it was made, unmade, remade. It is an artistic triumph. It is a magnum opus. It is a, as a final point of a years-long folly. It is the latest marker in pointless studio battles over, uh, over child's characters. However you want to frame it. Um, um, the, all those narratives um, were in ever abundance over the whole like four or five year history that we've lived through with this thing. Uh, most of those narratives just do not support as through lines what we have in front of us as a work of art, what we know about the production, what we know about the cultural commentary that the movie's been born into. And so I think a resistance to um, um, cleanly set narratives before we have, uh, not to get too technical sounding, but like data or, or information or the artistic object to closely study in front of us, I think if there's a lesson from Justice League, it's not to let the narrative get ahead of that. Because ultimately we're not, I mean, I'm sure the narratives are fun, right? Like we love that Mad Max Fury Road was like, the ordeal it was and like what that represents and like nobody understood what like the cast didn't understand what George Miller was doing on set all that stuff um, but ultimately that is like immaterial next to the simple experience of engaging with Mad Max Free Road as a work and plumbing its depths uh, based on what it presents to you and uh, and analyzing it based on what it presents to you and the same is true of Justice League like ultimately what I got most out of Justice League wasn't how well it fit the narrative I had in my head or in others' heads, it was just actually looking at it and pe trying to piece together as best I could what was probable or true. But it's not good. <laughs> it's not a good movie. That's why we're not killing the podcast, right? I think we're still excited to like just talk about like these like issues that sometimes don't get as much daylight as other ones when people talk about and think about movies. Yeah, I got like a bunch of episodes we won't have to do here. We still got to talk about Street Fighter the movie. We got to talk about what? Like uh, Talking Heads interviews. Uh, we got to talk about Defcon, the video game. Yeah, we, got, we got lots of stuff to talk about. I insist that we'll talk about... Fixed cameras? Fixed cameras and Resident Evil. Tank controls. Yep. Tank controls. I insist, even though this is a podcast about movies, that you talk about tank controls. Hot take. Fixed camera angles and tank controls in video games is the most significant thing that's happened in uh, 
montage film, like film montage, like editing montage in a century. Yeah, there's still more things we want to do with the show. And we really like the community that's built up around this show and that we've had a way to connect with people during the pandemic. Yeah, that, That's yeah. a big part. We also need a break. <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah, like we started this show because of the pandemic, partly, you know, like it was an idea that Devin had had for a while, I believe, but, you know, really got inspired because of the pandemic. And I feel like the, the whole um, online content creation industry, we can say, um, the take industry, the endless video essays by people sitting in front of the cameras, thrives on regularity because that's what helps the algorithm. Yeah. And I, I think I can speak for all of us. The thing we want to avoid is getting caught in that mill of creating a podcast episode because we got to have one every week. We had such yeah. a backlog of stuff that we wanted to get through for the past year that I think we never really ran into that in a severe way because yeah. there's just always, there was always like 20 episodes we just had to do because we felt compelled. We and, never did a podcast before. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, and that's the whole nature of the sophomore slump with bands, right? You know, they, they spend years mm-hmm. coming up with their first album and then they, uh, their second album, they had to come up with in yeah. a matter of months. <laughs> It's also something like related to the high quality, right? Because like a lot of those ideas you guys had in the backlog were things you've been thinking about for years and had developed opinions on, right? So mm-hmm. like that that's part yeah. of the high quality that we want to rem- keep up. It's like we don't want to just pull ideas that we've only thought about for five minutes and like have an hour long discussion about it. Plus you know? Devin needs to play Resident Evil. <laughs> we we got to finish our movie so we can do an episode about that. You know, there's yeah. lots of good stuff coming up. There's stuff to build up to. Yeah. So anyway... I think that's a, that's a good place to say there's more ahead. Uh, thanks for taking a break with us. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find Film Formally specifically at, at Film Formally. Feel free to hit us up there with episode ideas or reactions. We'll keep on keeping an eye on that. But you can find us uh, individually on Twitter, too. We'd love to chat with you. There's me, at Sad Hill Will. There's Devin, at Sad Hill Devin. There is Paige, at... Pa- <laughs> At Page Smith Film, and uh, we would I tweet love a to... lot about gerbils. Follow me. Yeah, we'd we'd all we'd all love to talk with you, or just have you give us dopamine by having you click like on our tweets. Follow me, especially these two nerds only talk about movies. I talk about cool things. <laughs> well, as you're hearing your laugh, that is our associate producer, Paige Smith. <laughs> If you like this episode, hey, we still would love it if you rated and reviewed us on your podcast service of choice. Do we still say that? We do not need to say that anymore. Yeah, no, I still want a rating. If you like it, rate it. I still want people to discover the podcast. There's lots of good stuff on here to discover. Sign up for our Uh, Patreon if you want to get charged very regularly for episodes coming out. In addition to Twitter, as mentioned, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Film Formally. But Twitter's where the cool kids are at. This podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time. Whenever that is.